0: this morning I'd like to explain to you what it means to take refuge in precept and uh, as I said earlier those of you who want to do that can then do it afterwards you don't have to it's totally voluntary as everything else is the guidelines, the meditation, the uh, purification, everything is voluntary. There's nobody there that can enforce it. One's own conscience sometimes can, but that's about it. One's common sense sometimes can. If we lose our common sense, we lose the ground under our feet. And since we are human beings, we need ground under our feet. So, we need to use all that as our support systems. To take refuge in precept, it's a way we express it, to take it. It's, um, actually, the word does not really explain what one does. One commits oneself to the precepts. As a training path, as a path for one's own purification, as a path for one's own growth. One makes a determination out of the understanding that this will be helpful to oneself. So one isn't taking it, one's actually giving oneself to it. The reason the word taking precepts has arisen, this way of expressing it, is because it is traditionally common to do this with a monk or nun in a Buddhist country who first pronounce them and then those who want to take them pronounce them after they have been said first. One can do it all by oneself. However, this is more of a public announcement and therefore it carries a bit more weight. All the other people that are there have heard it, that the other ones are also doing it. There's group support, but also it is as if one has publicly announced that one is committing oneself to this training. Uh, has a little more impact than if one does it in the corner of one's room without even saying it out loud on one's own mind it has a little more impact also if one then does break one of the precepts all that's necessary is to repeat it to oneself again sometimes over and over again. That's all right. It's a training. It's a skill. I have explained them last night and that we should also try to practice the opposites. They are the foundation and the basis for a spiritual growth process. This is a process which shows us quite clearly that there isn't a solid me because this me can change. It is a process of change which, when we look back upon the former me after some time, mind you, we will quite naturally recognize that this me is different than the one we are having now if we have continued this process of purification. There is a story of two brothers at the time of the Buddha who became monks at the same time. And one was very intelligent and one was a bit dull. They went to different monasteries. The intelligent one learned all the chanting and he learned all the um, suttas by heart. And he could recite them very well. Then he visited his brother and asked him whether the brother had learned anything. The brother said he tried but he couldn't remember a thing. So, of course, the intelligent brother said to the dull one that he was stupid and we would never get any enlightenment. So, of course, the the dull one was a bit downhearted and depressed about that. And he thought, well, the first chance he gets, he's going to inquire from the Buddha what he could do because he just can't remember anything. So the Buddha said when he came to visit that monastery, The Buddha called him and he said to him that he can't remember anything. He's dull. And his mind just isn't like his brothers who can remember everything. So, the Buddha said, Well, in that case, here is a piece of cloth. And it has many stains. Now, take a brush and some cleaning substance and brush this try to get these stains out and next year I'll come back and I'll see how well it's have done with trying to clean this piece of cloth can you remember to do that he said oh yes sure I can remember to do that I'll start right now so he started and he brushed and he brushed and it dawned on him that that was exactly what he was supposed to be doing with his own heart and mind so he kept brushing away at these stains in the cloth and all the time remembering that all the negativities need to be also brushed out and whenever one arose he immediately let go or substituted and again and again and when the Buddha came back after a year the piece of cloth was nice and clean So, of course, this monk quite happily went to show the Buddha this nice piece of clean cloth. And the Buddha asked him, did you clean up properly? And the monk said, yes, he understood, he said, yes, I cleaned up properly. And the Buddha said, that's very good, that's all you need to know. So whether we know is not really the criteria the criteria is whether we do again and again and again I don't know how many times the Buddha said this it doesn't matter what we know it only matters what we do now these precepts five in number with their five opposites us not being dull we can remember them but what does it help if we don't do? So this is a lifetime work, every single day. We don't need a meditation course. We don't need a teacher. We don't need a book. We don't need anything. All we need is remembering. This is a cleaning process. The refuges are something very special and particular. We take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. How do we do it? What does it mean? Well, first of all, Buddha is not a statue and in this context also not a person. Although he is a historical person, taking refuge in a historical person that's no longer alive doesn't really fit or produce the effect. It's the enlightenment principle. Buddha means the enlightened one. So it's not a name. His name was Siddhartha Gautama, the one we are referring to. So we're taking refuge in the enlightenment principle it exists, we have confidence that it exists, and we also commit ourselves wholeheartedly to that attainment. Whether we do or not actually attain it, that's a second question, which is of no consequence. The wholehearted commitment to the attainment of the Enlightenment principle gives our life direction lifts us out of the ordinary everyday problems which will continue to be there but they are no longer our greatest concern our greatest concern becomes the enlightenment principle whatever we understand about it however much we know about it it doesn't matter little or much We realize it is a transcending of the worldly affairs. Not that we have to get out of the world. We transcend the importance of those affairs. They continue. This body needs worldly attention, unfortunately. Nothing one can do about it. As long as we've got it, it needs attention which exists in the world however our mind does not have to consider any of that as its most important endeavor our mind having fully and wholeheartedly committed itself to the enlightenment principle which exists which will never leave the universe which is always available we realize our direction, our priorities, and we also realize that there is something much greater than ourselves, than this small, very limited me. The Dhamma of course is a teaching, and taking refuge in that teaching means protection. There is no place in the world as we know it, which affords total protection. We are constantly in danger of going downhill in the mind or of losing our life. There is no guarantee. The Dhamma, as the teaching of the transcendental wisdom which is far beyond whether one has this body or not contains a shelter a safety, a security which when the mind gives itself wholeheartedly to it in confidence that it is protective, it will. The Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner, in the words of the Buddha, the one who commits him or herself to this transcendental wisdom, where body is no longer of the utmost importance, where mind will eventually transcend That person is protected from fear. What is there to fear? We can fear losing our life. What do we lose? This body. Have you meanwhile ascertained whether it is such a pleasure to have such a body? Wouldn't it have been much easier to sit here in meditation without it? Far less of the problems arising. So fear for one's own life, fear for one's own safety, gets lost when we know that the Dhamma protects us. Fear of losing that which we are hanging on to because we consider it mine. That too is lost. Because within the Dhamma we know already that there is nothing that's mine. That fear is, of course, the last one to go. The fear of losing that which is mine. But it gets reduced and less heavy, less penetrating, that fear. Everything becomes lighter, because the Dhamma is there. Now the Dhamma, in order to protect us, has to be known. At least enough so that we can refer to it in moments of stress, in moments of strain, of tension of fear referring to it in some manner or form whatever we can remember about it doesn't have to be verbatim but surely everybody remembers something the protection which this affords us gives the mind buoyancy the buoyancy of the mind helps it To practice because we're no longer so bogged down by the daily affairs and the daily difficulties which everybody encounters nobody gets away without daily difficulties but we will no longer have such great concern about them the mind more and more reverts to Dhamma Consciousness because it has committed itself wholeheartedly The words committing oneself wholeheartedly are important Whole heart, whole mind, not half heartedly brings less than half results not even half because the mind is torn Half-hearted commitment means that the mind is constantly weighing and making choices. Should I do this worldly thing or should I rather meditate or should I rather put my attention on learning more about the Dhamma? Constant choices. So the mind is not at ease and not at rest and its half-hearted commitment gives it a tear it's torn a heart that's torn cannot have strength and power if we are wholeheartedly committed to something which is an ideal and beyond the ordinary loss and gain syndrome then the heart is unified and a unified heart has strength, it has power it has sincerity it has a feeling of being able to do what it sets out to do we all have wishes And strangely enough, we get most of them also in this life. We've got to be very careful. We should be extremely concerned about having the right kind of wishes. We all have an inner power and an inner strength, which is actually unknown to us until we start generating it, applying it. And then we can see what happens? We get what we want. That's why great care is necessary to watch the mind to go in the right direction. That great care has to be exercised constantly not just once in a while. The mind is a jewel containing the seed of enlightenment. If we don't care for it we don't look after it it can go in the deepest depths of misery and darkness so deep that sometimes one can't get it out again if we take refuge such a thing it's not so likely to happen if we mean it this should never be just lip service it should have meaning and the meaning also contains reverence and devotion to something far greater than worldly affairs something far greater than a mind that wants and rejects an idea with this is reverence and devotion, love arises, love and gratitude all these aspects help the heart to be whole-hearted all these aspects help the mind to know it's protected a mind that contains love and gratitude, devotion, commitment, reverence and respect is protected from negativity. It's the negativity which can assail us and hurt us. Because we are all interconnected and as I have explained and as some of you have already noticed yourselves there is no real division between one person and another between ourselves and an infinite consciousness if our mind is negative and goes into depths of despair or depths of ill will of hurtfulness we attract those forces to us because there is no division if we are wholeheartedly committed to the idea of the transcendental wisdom with love and devotion we attract those forces and they will be there as a protection there are forces of mind, of consciousness everywhere in the universe surely nobody believes that the mind that we supposedly personally own is all there is to it, that would be rather devastating. If the mind that makes up stories and tells um, constant uh, has constant ideas instead of being concentrated is all there is to mind in this universe. If that was all, where would enlightenment be? we can attract the positive or the negative and that is greatly helped if we are constantly going in the direction of those feelings within which are powerful for the good commitment, giving oneself, is also a lessening of the ego consciousness because we're giving ourselves to something higher than what we are, far greater than what a person is, but available to us. If enlightenment, were not available to ordinary people the Buddha would not have been preaching for 45 years to ordinary people like ourselves everyone carries that seed we all come from the same source we can all go back to the same source whatever name we'd like to give it a name is nothing a convention. We need those conventions otherwise we don't know what we're talking about. Even with them we sometimes don't know what we're talking about. But without them we'd be completely at a loss. This protection which we need to afford ourselves with keeping our mind geared towards the transcendental is greatly helped if we know that there is the enlightenment principle to which we have given ourselves completely and the Dhamma which shows us the way. The third one of those refuges is the Sangha. Now the Sangha is traditionally called those that are wearing these robes but that's not meant here how do we know who is inside that robe? What is meant here is the community of human beings who have attained enlightenment following the Buddha's path whether they wore this or jeans, doesn't matter it has nothing to do with that traditional Sangha In some instances, particularly in America Everybody who sits in meditation, crosses their legs and closes their eyes, are called Sangha. We are not taking refuge in that either. we are taking refuge in those people who have managed to go the whole way. And there have been some of those all the time, since the Buddha's lifetime until now. Of course they have been before the Buddha's lifetime also because there have always been Buddhas but we don't have that wonderful record but there have always been enlightened beings. It's not up to us, it's not interesting whether we can find one, whether we can know one. Only a Buddha knows a Buddha. If we're not enlightened ourselves we wouldn't know what to look for. We might go by outer signs which are totally misleading or we might be turned off by outer signs which are equally misleading. The only thing that's of any interest to ordinary people like ourselves is to know the guidelines and to try to follow them as best as we can step by little step. I like to compare the whole of this spiritual path with a mountain, quite a high mountain, where we have been told that on top of the mountain the air is completely unpolluted, the view is magnificent, and everybody up there is totally happy. So naturally, not being totally happy, we want to get up on that mountain. So we find ourselves a guide someone who's been up the mountain, like the Buddha and try to follow the direction but if we are foolish enough to constantly try to see the top of the mountain because if we don't know what's up there, we don't want to climb we will keep falling on our noses the only way we can successfully climb any mountain is by watching each step. And then we will know where the rocks are that will impede our progress. We will know where the crevices are into which we could fall because we are watching each step. And then the climb itself becomes all that's necessary. Whether the top of the mountain is going to agree to our expectations and that we will only climb if it does is an impossibility because we can only know once we're up there. And in this endeavor the interesting thing is that when we have come up there there's nobody left. To make that decision whether it actually is as we expected it. So the only thing to do is to keep climbing. And what happens when we climb a mountain carefully, gently, step by step? We get a better view even after having gone only a few steps. We can look down and see a far greater vision than before, when we're down in the valley or we can see as far as the, our horizon and our horizon is pretty limited optically and mentally but when we get up the mountain just a little bit it widens so nothing matters except each step each step on the way and having taken one step or two we will know this has been beneficial the Buddha assures us that we can all get up there this is a mountain which the yearning of the heart and mind is picturing in legend and folklore it's mentioned over and over again not as a mountain necessarily as the growl, as um, the um, end, as the all, as God, as the all-encompassing love, you can find it in all nations, legends, folklores, stories. We want to get up there. But most of us shun the difficulty of the climb. We have to accept that fact, that the higher we want to go, the more work is involved in getting there. Slowly, slowly, gently, gently, step by step. The protection of the refuge is a feeling that arises in the heart Of being connected with many thousands thousands of other people who are going the same path maybe millions there are five hundred million Buddhists in the world of which most of them do take refuge and precept so the connection with others that are climbing the same mountain gives one a feeling of not being alone in this difficulty because it's not easy to climb not only that but we can also get a feeling that we have now started on a journey of the greatest importance incomparably more important than any journey we could take by train, by plane, by bus, on foot This is a journey of heart and mind The refuge taken properly with humility and commitment should make those feelings arise in one's heart and they give one an impetus for practice where the initial resistances just drop away Initial resistances are in everybody's mind and heart because the Dhamma, as I explained to you earlier, goes upstream and not downstream it goes against the current, against the current of our personal instincts, wishes and desires so there is initial resistance but getting the feeling of having taken on the greatest of endeavours that a human being can possibly make namely transcending to be an ordinary human being which in the Buddha's language is called a worldly, a putajana going beyond that to a noble one, an aria. That certainty removes the resistance. We don't need to leave our jobs or our families. That's where our greatest tests come from. the tests of purity of reaction. So next time, when we wash dishes, or maybe rub a stain out of our clothing, we might remember the story of the monk who was rubbing, 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 cleaning, cleaning, cleaning inside. When we're sweeping a floor, or sweeping a path, or washing a floor, or scrubbing a bathtub, cleaning ourselves. The connection is easily made in the mind, it goes like that. So that our ordinary everyday activities are all geared towards transcendental wisdom. That's the commitment, that's the path, that's our refuge, that's our safety, because otherwise Those things can be considered to be, those ordinary things, can be considered to be time-consuming, energy-wasting. I can't get to my practice. I've got too much to do. Let's do it in practice. All of it, any of it, is practice. There's nothing that can be exempted from that. When we make beauty, which many of us can, painting, decorating, beautifying, yes, we beautify the environment and at the same time put beauty in here. Watching mind and heart, is it beautiful? All of us, all of our activities can go in that direction. There isn't a single one which doesn't have that possibility. I'd also like to mention the shrine to you. This particular shrine is totally unconventional, and is nowhere else to be found where I've ever been, and I've been around quite a bit. This particular shrine depicts the four elements, and since we have discussed them, and some of you have actually used them for meditative practice, it's quite nice to know that this is what it is. The bottom, the square, is supposed to be earth. It's difficult to depict these things, Um, unless you take a bit of earth and put it there. The uh, next one, the round one, with the um, little, what look like little waves, is the water. The next one over that is the fire. Sort of going in all directions, the fire. And the one on top, the white umbrella, is air or wind. And the way one, one on top, way up, space the one I haven't actually used because I said it was a mental one there is also space and then consciousness I'm not sure whether this crystal is supposed to mean consciousness but it probably does so these are the six elements space and consciousness being mentality whereas the other four are corporality so they ha- that is totally unconventional uh, the um, an invention of Prakantipalo can't be found anywhere else in the world as far as I know. However, we also have the conventional shrine, the one that the Theravadan tradition uses wherever we go. And besides the Buddha statue, which as I told you already contains the or depicts the enlightenment principle we have three things on the shrine, in our tradition, which never fail to be there. In other traditions, there are also often other implements, which are also symbolic, meaning... In our tradition also, there are other things sometimes put there for decoration, but three things never fail. Candle, flower, and incense. Now, the candle is symbolic of the light in the enlightened mind. It's a sim- symbolism for enlightenment. Light. Where can light be? Only in the mind. The flowers, when they're not made from paper or wood, but are natural, and I think we have two with natural flowers, depict impermanence. Beautiful this morning, dead tonight, or tomorrow night. They are symbolic of ourselves. Beautiful this morning, dead and ugly in a few years. A very short time span, which is supposed to arouse some vega urgency. Do it now. There's no time to waste. The flower, in other words, can be considered myself. It has the same aspect of impermanence, going from beauty to ugliness and getting thrown away in a very short period, shorter than ours. And if you when we do take precept and refuge, think of that when you put your flower on the shrine. Think of it as putting yourself there. That is part of making the wholehearted commitment, if you like. You don't have to. The incense is symbolic for the beautiful aroma which exudes from a completely purified person as the Buddha was or the enlightened Sangha. That beautiful aroma goes far and wide. It enhances life for others. So the inner purity of a totally purified person enhances life for others because it touches them. These are the three symbols of a Theravadan shrine which are always there And the way we're going to do our taking precept and refuge is that each one of you who likes to do it comes forward, puts the flower on the shrine, takes one of the incense sticks and lights it and sticks it in the uh, bowl there as a commitment to purity. The flower as an understanding of impermanence but also as a devotional and respectful and a gift in gratitude to the Buddha for his teaching. And then put prostrates three times to the Buddha shrine. This prostration is called the five-point prostration because we put five points of our body on the floor the forehead the two hands and the two elbows we go down like that that prostration is a symbol for our commitment for our humility that we haven't transcended yet but we are committed to transcend and it's also a a show of love we can hardly go there and uh, hug the Buddha image. So we we'll prostrate. It is our the one way of showing our connection, the way of being together with Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Three prostrations, one for Buddha, one for Dhamma, one for Sangha. Actually, we usually put three incense sticks but if everybody puts three it might get too much so we'll put one for all three one the one is going to be one third for Buddha one third for Dhamma and one third for Sangha alright then after you have done that you go back to your seat and I will chant the refuge and precept in Pali and after having chanted each one in Pali I will say it in English and then you repeat after me in English while doing this we sit in Anjali now Anjali is just a Pali word for respectful greeting and the way it's done like this means it's coming from my heart from my heart it's going out now it is also interesting that this is a very common greeting in Buddhist countries, amongst people, whereas we shake hands, they greet like that. And um, I looked into that: what shaking hands actually means. And it was invented a long, long time ago to show that we didn't have a weapon in our hand. So we shake hands; it's empty the hand. This. Way of greeting. It is, um, first of all, it's a traditional way of doing it, and secondly, it also depicts that this um, refuge and precept is coming from my heart. Those of you who don't want to take it can also sit like that just to support those that are taking it. Now, if anyone would like to take a refuge and precept and hasn't got himself a flower because they weren't here this morning or a little twig, little greenery, weren't here this morning when I said so you can have five minutes to go out and get them we can stand up, stretch our legs meanwhile and get back to our seats
1: now we'll sit in
0: Anjali and The first thing I'm going to chant, only in Pali, it doesn't need to be repeated. It's a um, traditional formula of reverence for the Buddha. It's how all um, ceremonies are started. Namo tasa bhagavata arahato sammasambhuttasam Namo tasa bhagavata arahato sammasambhuttasam Namo tasa bhagavata Arahato samma sambutta sam. <coughs> Bodhang sarananga charming. I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhamma sarananga charming. I take refuge in the Dhamma. Sangham Sarananga Charming. I take refuge in the Sangha. Do te am Sangha but Charming. For the second time. I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. For the second time, I take
1: refuge
0: in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Tateyampi Dhammang Sarananga Chami For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma.
1: Tateyampi
0: Sanghang Sarananga Chami For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Sarana gampanam sanganam. ramani sika padam I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Adi nadana veramani sika padam samadiyam. I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Kame somichachara veramani sika padam samadhyami i undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct musavada ve padam samadhyami i undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh speech Sura Veramani I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. The last one means, may the taking of the three refuges and the five precepts be conducive to well-being and happiness and to your
1: practice. in this little
0: ceremony which we have just done may be a foundation stone for the continuation of your practice I wish and hope that it may be I will say a few words about the future we have now come to the end of this course, and so we shall indulge in the future. Now you are going home, and most of you will be on your own. Now some of you who live here have the support system of the group that also meditates, but most of you may not have that. So you have to become very independent. You have to have the conviction that you're doing the right thing. When one practices upstream, one needs the courage of one's own conviction. So if you live all alone, you don't have to convince anybody. If you live with someone who also practices, very good, you've got a group. But if you live with people who don't think that this is a very good idea, it's no use trying to convince them. The only convincing that we can possibly do is by showing after some years of practice that this has actually turned us into a purer, better human being with whom the other person likes to live
1: now. If that happens
0: you can be sure that practice has worked. The other person may or may not then become interested in practicing him or herself It doesn't matter. At least there'll be some appreciation of the
1: practice. If
0: that doesn't happen, the only thing that the practitioner can do is increase his or her loving kindness and compassion. If we meditate by ourselves, and we have the strong wish now to do it every day till the end of days, we should make a few arrangements to support this determination. The first one is to have a permanent place in the house where this meditation is to take place. So that one doesn't, when one wakes up in the morning, has to decide, now where am I going to sit? Am I going to sit in the bedroom or in the living room or should I maybe uh, go in the den or uh, maybe there's no room here or there? but there is a certain place for meditation. In our houses, we usually have a place for eating, for sleeping, for washing, for cooking. And we don't change it around every day. In fact, we'd feel extremely uncomfortable if we did. So, have a little place for meditation. It needs to be no bigger than this mat. And just enough room to get in there.
1: It can be a whole room. You
0: can decorate it and make it beautiful, or you can just leave it, plain if anything. That's up to each person. You can have a Buddha statue, or a bunch of flowers, a a picture on the wall, or nothing. It doesn't matter. Just so that you've got a pillow there, so that in the morning you don't have to search for a pillow. Everybody can get one extra pillow and leave it there. We don't take our chairs out of the dining room, we don't take our stove out of the kitchen every time we're finished with cooking or eating. It all remains where it is. The towels are in the bathroom, and the toilet paper in the toilet, hopefully. So the cushion remains in the meditation corner, where it belongs. The other Arrangement is that is helpful is a timer, something that rings when your time is up, just like this little bell has been ringing. And most of you have remained in your seat most of the time until it did ring, because you knew the time wasn't up yet. Whether you were very concentrated or not, the last 10 minutes or the last 30 minutes or whatever, didn't really make any difference. You kept trying. You knew the time wasn't up yet. Now when you sit at home, and you don't have such a timer, and the mind goes from here to there, from yesterday to tomorrow, and you're trying to meditate, 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 in reality thinking, 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 after a little while, the mind will say, well, first of all, this is no use, and secondly, it's at least an hour. (laughs) So you get up, go to make breakfast, and what has it been? Ten minutes. Now that, of course, results in not doing it at all. So if we really want to do it, we need a support system, which, in this case, we have to supply ourselves. So, after getting this timer, if you are a beginner, if this is your first time, and you feel that you can't bear to sit longer than, let's say, 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night, well, by all means, do that and make up a determination that you will increase that. Every two weeks, five more minutes, until you reach an hour. Slowly, gently. Much better than the other way around. Starting full speed ahead. One hour in the morning, one hour at night, and six weeks later, what do we get? Nothing. All gone gently, slowly, working one's way up. If you're an experienced meditator, one hour in the morning, one hour at night, no problem, do it with the timer. And if the meditation is according to your judgment, not working, remember the immediate benefits. It counteracts sloth and torpor, because if you weren't sitting there meditating, you'd be in bed. It brings good karma because the intention is there. Every second of concentration is one second of purification which otherwise you wouldn't have had.
1: When you label
0: your thoughts you get an insight into your habitual way of thinking and you learn to label in everyday life. Keep labeling in everyday life. You'll be surprised how beneficial that is. Before getting angry, the label has already said, aha, irritation arriving. Not necessary. Change it. Substitute it. It's a most special, beneficial thing we can do for ourselves. So if you do that in meditation, the skill arises. If you have been concentrated in this course, and have gained access to elevated states of consciousness, one or more. If you stop meditating, you have my personal guarantee that you're going to have to start all over again. It doesn't remain with you. Insight remains. Calm and tranquility disappears. One has to start working at it again. It is as if you are stretching the muscles and tendons in the body through doing exercise, stopping the exercise, and the muscles and tendons shrink again. The longer you stop, the more shrunk they get, the more shrunk the mind gets, and you've got to start expanding again. So if you have been able to have calm, joy, that's not feeling any one of them all three in their proper succession. If you don't continue, you're gonna to have to start again.
1: The second
0: time is usually easier when one starts again, but in some cases even more difficult. There's no general pattern for that. It is extremely helpful to have group support as you've had here. As you know, none of us would have said as often or as long if everybody else hadn't been doing it too. So once a week, try to join a group somewhere, where, near, where you live, which you can reach. If you haven't any group in your area Start one. Two people are a group. If you've got three, four, five, six, great. But once a week get together with other people who are meditating. Not only because the support system is good for your meditation, it is extremely good for the conviction in the mind that you're doing the right thing by trying to paddle upstream. If you only meet people who are paddling downstream you very soon begin to feel as if you might have made a mistake. How can I be so different? Maybe all these people are right and I'm wrong. So get together once a week with a group, if you can. There are always weekends being held here. The programs are available. Books. Books can be helpful, they can be the opposite. If you want to read what the Buddha really said, that is available. Unfortunately some of it is in old-fashioned English and some of it has been translated a hundred years ago, most of it has been retranslated. The Buddha's words are available. Possibly some are available in the office, I have no idea what is available there. But if you find the small pamphlet by the BPS, the Buddhist Publication Society, many of them contain one discourse of the Buddha. They are inexpensive and they usually have an explanation of the discourse by a long time practitioner. If you find any of those by Venerable Nanafonica, you can be assured that they're excellent. He's a German monk who is now 87 years old and has been the founder and president of the Buddhist Publication Society, which is now existing for 25 years. And his explanations of the Buddha's discourses are pertinent and profound. So if you see those small booklets by BPS, look and see whether it's a discourse of the Buddha, if you want to read the Buddha's words, and if it's been described and translated by Venerable Anaponica, you can't go wrong. One word of caution, there are those people and they are not too f- so few and far between, there are many of them who have good intellect, understand what they are reading and even have good memories and remember and forget to practice. They don't intentionally forget to
1: practice. There's
0: no intention behind it. They're quite well-meaning, well-intentioned people. But because they've understood what they've read and actually remembered it, they think they've already done it.
1: Careful. That
0: is one of the worst traps to fall into. Then it's better not to read a word. Then just to take the dirty cloth and keep brushing it off. If you're one of those people that can understand easily and remember easily, you have to be specially careful, but for everyone this applies. If you read the Buddhist words, read one page. Write down in telegram style the most pertinent sentence or the most pertinent instruction on a sheet of paper, with the name of the sutta on top and then that pertinent sentence, practice it. Don't read any further. The Buddhist discourses are not to be read like we usually read a novel. They are school books for the school of life and we didn't read our school books in school from first page to last in fact that's the last thing we would have done we were forced to read a page or two and do it and only when we had solved either the equation or answered the question were we to go on to the next page we were perfectly happy to do that we wouldn't have wanted to read the whole book here it's exactly the same this is a school book it teaches one about oneself
1: and about life
0: and by teaching one about oneself it teaches one about the whole universe so do the first page if that isn't containing enough two pages at the most write down what is the instruction and then actually experience that and go on to the next That way we can make great use of a book, otherwise a book remains, white paper with black little scribbles on it, that doesn't answer our questions. But if we use that the way I have described, it can be the substitute for a live teacher.
1: As I've said this morning, there
0: are three books of mine lying there which each one contains 12 Dhamma talks given at Parapurduanans Island, my nunnery in Sri Lanka. If you like to have them, leave a donation in that big bowl there so that for further printing of books and for also paying some of the costs of bringing the books here from Sri Lanka there's a little one there containing one Dhamma talk which is for sale from the Watt and it's one dollar, there's another triple there for that what you will read there in those books are the explanations of the Buddha's teaching, just like what you've got here
1: they're helpful but they are never a substitute for practice. They are
0: helpful because they remind us. They are reminders. If you have a book like that, it can be much more helpful than having a book about just adventure or travel, because this is a reminder of the practice. For that it's very useful. Friends and companions are one of the most important aspects of the spiritual path. Now that doesn't mean that you now go home and look up all your old friends and say, you know, I heard about this business about friends and companions and that. I don't think you're spiritual enough. That doesn't work either. Your friends, if they're your friends, they remain your friends.
1: But if
0: one actually puts oneself into the stream of this practice, other people do come
1: who are doing the same thing,
0: birds of a feather flock together, and it appears somewhat automatically that others that do the same thing are then once new friends. But there's one other thing to remember. Sure, we need noble friends and noble companions, mature, and wise people. But it's also very important to become one. How do we become a noble friend
1: and a noble companion? Through
0: our own practice we can be concerned
1: that others can benefit from our presence, then we
0: have become a noble friend. If this is our consideration that others will benefit from our presence, we can't go wrong. So, noble friend entails noble conversation, and if the conversations that we are um, witnessing are not very savoury, we can be the ones to change them. We don't have to become a victim. We can be the ones that have the courage of their own convictions. The more strength we gain through the meditation, the more strength all this will have. We can remember to be the noble friend naturally it is very helpful to have companions on the path and because people find that important they often do change their lifestyle and very often do change their environment all these possibilities exist maybe before we do our last loving-kindness meditation and sharing of merits you can ask your last questions most likely you will not see me again for another year so if you have any questions a year is going far into the future who knows who is alive so ask questions now for your practice or your understanding
1: No. Peace is a feeling.
0: So the peaceful feeling which comes after the joy is just as much a feeling as the joy. The joy is still exciting. So you let that go because it's still much more gross than peacefulness. And the peacefulness has an aspect of contentment in it. And uh, it is as much a feeling as as joy. Is. Okay, and don't forget to look at the impermanence of it all when it
1: starts dissipating. Okay. What else? Uh, yes, I
0: can actually. I've been having problems with that, but I can hear you.
1: No, no, no.
0: that's not the way to express that. Um, Mind is an overall name it's just a mm, denomination of four different aspects it just it doesn't exist in itself it ha- it is a collective it's a collective thing for four things and mental formation is one of that so How can mental formation exist? Yes, if you don't use the word mind, it exists. When you have feeling, you don't have mental formation. When you have perception, you don't have feeling. They're all separate, but they usually, in our daily life, are so jumbled together that we, because they follow each other so quickly, that our analysis of them is, first of all, nobody does it, and secondly, it's very difficult, but mind is not a thing that mental formation can be separate from. You can have mental formation, you can have feeling. you can have perception, you can have
1: sense consciousness. <laughs> it's a feeling. It's just a feeling, yes.
0: The mind is an overall name for the four of them. It's a, it's a collective name for four aspects. So you can't say it's not the mind. Sure, it's a mind, because the mind contains also the aspect of feeling. But it's not a mental formation, it's not a thought process. It's a feeling process. And all of them are processes. All of them are heaps, which are constantly arising and ceasing. None of them are solid and have a continuous stream in them.
1: Jeff. First of all, let me say this,
0: that's no way to practice, that's, that's intellectual head-tripping, what you're doing. If you want to know what is a mental formation, just watch it, coming and going, quite so. And when we are not master of the mind, then any rubbish will arise on its own accord. But mental formation is one aspect of mind. So how can mind have nothing to do with it? It is as if you were to say, as if you were going to cut off your nose in order to spite your face. Mental formation is one aspect of mind. So, when the mind becomes trained, well trained and uh, solid, then it can direct its mental formation. The mental formations no longer go all over the place, but the mental formations are, have willpower in them. They have a direction in them. They contain a um, strength which at first they don't. Mental formations are all over the place. Anything happens. But when you practice, right, in your meditation, there are only two things to do. Either you become calm and go into the absorptions. Or you try to find out, where is me? And when you want to find out where is me, you check up four aspects of mind and see whether me sits in one of them or all of them. You don't have to know whether mental formation is mind or whether mind is mental formation. It's totally immaterial and irrelevant. It has no bearing on anything. But in order to satisfy your uh, inquiry, mind is an overall name for four aspects. And mental formations can be wild, or they can be directed. Where they are directed, they have been trained. The training uh, takes place in meditation. The mental formation of concentration is the training. We push it into that place and the mental formation begins strength. There's willpower behind it. And willpower is also a mental formation. There are innumerable mental formations. If you like to read the Abhidhamma, which might be just the thing for you to do, because that answers those questions in detail, you will find that there are 89 states of consciousness, which have all sorts of different uh, aspects in them and all of them are mental formations. And these eighty-nine all consist of different, um, they, have all, they are not just one, but each one has several to make it w- to put, put together. Intention is also a mental formation. And there's intention which comes from oneself, there's intention which has been generated from outside. There is no end of different mental formations. And you can find that in the Abhidhamma, very well explained. And there's a chart like this. And they're all listed. And they're listed in the back of the uh, Nanoti locus. Uh, dictionary of Pali and English terms Very not a, not a fat one a thin one you find that chart in the back of that it's something that people who like uh, statistics love hmm.
1: no but that's what
0: you're trying to get at that's where it's going yeah that's that's where you're trying to, to go to
1: come again well uh,
0: yes but uh, you see in our way of talking about it the Buddha does use the words nama rupa mind and body because he doesn't always want to say uh, feeling, perception mental formation and sense consciousness and body he says mind and body but mine means those four. That's quite right, exactly with, like a, your bread. Exactly the same. Or your cake. You don't bake bread, you bake cake, don't you? <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> what else? Nothing else? So all
0: Questions finished. Wonderful. Now all we have to do is actually do it. eh?